Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then dig into Psalm 145 a bit together tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful to effectually call us to yourself. We thank you, Lord God, that despite the hardness of our heart, despite our, our own thoughts, our own plans, our own agendas, you came to seek us out. The God-man, Christ Jesus, would come and, and deliver himself on a cross to seek and save sinners like us. Lord God, would you work in our hearts tonight that as we reflect on what it is that you have done, that we would be quick to tell of your mighty deeds. That we would be quick to tell of what you have done on our behalf. The price that you have paid in our stead and the grace that you have showered upon us. May we as your people bless you tonight in song and in word and with everything that passes through our minds. Would you quiet our hearts and minds now so that we would hear from your word and that we would see your face clearly, that we might praise you as we ought. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, by now you know where to turn in your Bibles. We're starting our Sunday in the Psalms in Psalm 145. Many have asked, are we going to do the Psalms in order? Are we going to start at, at Psalm 1? And the answer is No. We're going to start at, at Psalm 145. This psalm is towards the very end. There's 150 psalms, and I did a quick calculation. If we did a Sunday in the psalm, and we did it the first Sunday of every month, we would have 12 and a half years of material to, to look at as we understand God's grace and God's goodness. But as we'll see tonight, one night isn't enough to get through and properly comprehend even a verse, much less an entire chapter of the Psalms. There is so much in here that speaks to the greatness of our God. There is so much in here that, that even if we could use an evening every month, we wouldn't come close. One of the other reasons that we've decided to, to make this Sunday in the Psalms, of course, a catchy name, but more importantly, as we look at our diet of Scripture as a church, we're going to always be focused on the gospel. We're going to balance our, our diet between a, the Pauline epistles and the gospels and a minor prophet, but the Psalms, the Psalms, they lift up our countenance. They set our eyes properly on the grandeur of our God. It is impossible to worship God effectively without a steady diet of psalms being read and being meditated upon. This particular psalm, Psalm 145, is uh, 21 verses long. We're only going to be able to, to really focus on the, the first 13. And I'm going to read those first 13 for you. And as we do that, I want to tell you that there are four great applications for the psalms in, in the context that we're going to use them. One is that a psalm is devotional in nature, meaning it helps us to meditate. It's a great way to, to start our day, to align our mind with the mind of Christ. The psalms are also instructional. They give us instructions on, on how to live out our lives. Moreover, they're theological. These psalms point us to who the God is that we're singing to. Impossible to effectively sing praises to a God that we don't rightly contemplate. 
And I'll add to, to the fact that they're theological, that they're also Christological. One of the things that I'm really excited about is there's a, there's a group of guys that are already picking out the psalm, not in order, that they desire to come and share with us. What a joy to see others spending time intentionally, weeks, if not months, meditating on, studying, and preparing a psalm to bring it to the body. But, but one of the things that's important is not only these songs, psalms theological, but they're Christological. I love what Christ said to his bewildered and confused disciples as he walked with them on the Emmaus Road. It says that he explained everything to them from the, the prophets and the, and the Psalms. And he told them that it was all about him. The Psalms have their very authorship in Christ. And the Psalms point to Christ. Some more directly than others, and some might require some study. But these Psalms, make no mistake about it, are all about him who is of the offspring of David who occupies his throne forever and ever. And then finally, besides being devotional and instructional and theological and Christological, they're also communal, right? I know I sometimes sing a psalm by myself, and it doesn't sound like they sounded tonight. What a joy to do that together. These psalms are intended to be sung, intended to be done in community. So as we go through and I, I read this text for you, think about how they apply to our lives devotionally and with instruction and with informing us of who God is in Christ Jesus and how we get to do it together. Psalm 145, beginning at verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your kingdom endures throughout all generations. We begin this precious psalm of David with David speaking to himself, speaking of himself in singular form. And he says, I will extol you, my God, O king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. This really brings out some of the devotional aspects of how we might use this psalm and how we ought to consider it being applied to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, David begins by saying that he's going to do this with a daily discipline. He's going to speak of God's praises and he's going to bless God's name on a daily basis. 
As we think about our, our Christian discipline and a, and, a, and a rhythm of daily life, we need to come back to this because oftentimes our attitude towards a new day is less than devotional. Any of you have that, that Sunday night pit in your stomach as you think about going back to work on Monday morning? Anybody else feel that, right? Does anybody feel like there's sometimes just this weight, this heaviness, maybe even a, a depression, and you just don't want to get out of bed the next morning? It weighs you down. But David instructs us in such a way that he says, every day I will bless you. And as we move through this text, we're going to say that, see, that these days add up. Some of us know that. Ty mentioned how many times he's been around the sun, right? The, the, the days add up into weeks, into months. And as David moves us through this, it goes then to generation, to generation. And so what David is calling out is this daily discipline of blessing and praising God. That has a, has a cumulative effect on our lives as believers. As we dig into this a little, bit far, a little bit further, we also see that this psalm is theological. And I want to spend most of our time tonight, although we'll look at a few different verses, on the simplicity of verse 3. Now, I read verse 3 for you in NASB. Some of you might have caught that. It says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. For those of you who have ESV, the translation almost sounds a bit repetitive, doesn't it? It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Another translation says, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. If you don't remember anything tonight, remember the word great. Remember the word great? Like, the translators of this text don't have any other word to put in there, so we use greatness three times. And you know what? Even that falls horribly short. There is no way to describe all of the things that God has done. There is no word to describe what has been done by God as our creator, as our sustainer, as our savior, as our defender, and as our Lord. The word in other translations there where it says his greatness is unsearchable is a word called inscrutable. It's not one we use in our everyday conversation, but it means it goes beyond the ability to describe it. There's no way. I was sharing with the brothers the other morning, had a couple minutes to go over to our HOA swimming pool and, and jump into the deep end of the swimming pool. And the swimming pool there is 12 feet deep, okay? 12 feet is just a little beyond where most people can, can get on a really healthy cannonball right? You want to try to get to the bottom and you're, you don't hit bottom when you jump in and you just want to swim towards the bottom and you want to get to the point where you can touch the bottom and the pressure builds. You can feel it in your ears and you can feel it in your lungs and all of the buoyancy says, you're not going to get to the bottom of this. And so it is with the greatness of God. You try to put it into words and the best you can come up with is stumbling through the same word three times. God is great. He's greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. A verse to, to help us understand how Scripture commonly calls this out and, and brings us back to this truth over and over again is found in the book of Job. Job chapter 11, 
verse 7, Job goes through these, these rhetorical questions. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? It is the measure, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons back to court, who can turn back? Can you find out the deep things of God? Now, if we think in David's day and in Job's day of the questions that they had to ask about the greatness of God, just think ahead to Christ Jesus, to the mystery of the gospel that we've seen unfolded through the book of Ephesians. David saw it, and he saw his faithfulness in, in taking Israel through conquest and through hard times, bringing victory and acting on behalf of God's people. But the greatness of God is no more on display than in and through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul asks a similar question, and, and he's got all the more depth in his understanding, but yet even still, he can't touch bottom. What does 11, Romans eleven thirty three say? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable, there's that word, are his ways. Can't even understand the mystery of this gospel, as Paul says it. And, and so it's, it's that theology that we see in the psalm that lends itself to doxology. We're going to spend a little bit of time together in prayer a little later on tonight. And I want you to start thinking in your mind already now, what is it that you have seen in your own life that is a testimony to God's greatness? What is it? As we think of Sundays in the Psalms, God's greatness will be a feature each and every time we meet. I found this really great quote in uh, Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms. Some of you have shared quotes from this before, and, and Spurgeon's commentary on this particular verse is incredible. Here's what he says. First, he begins out his, his summary of this verse by saying, worship should be somewhat like its object, great praise for a great God. What an interesting way of saying that. The prince of preachers, he says, worship should be somewhat like its object. What an understatement, right? Like our worship tonight, we're full of joy. We sound pretty good. But all of that doesn't come close to the object, to the subject of whom we are worshiping. Worship should be somewhat like its object. Furthermore, as we move into this text, the, the sermon title tonight is From Generation to Generation, the way that we give account of God's greatness from father to son. Spurgeon says, Not all of the minds of all of the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out, and therefore, his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. As we worship together, his greatness is beyond all that we can render to him. There's not words enough. So for tonight, the word will be great. How was Sunday night? It was great, right? Understated, how is God? Great beyond words and beyond description. Unsearchable, unsearchable. Going back to, to our key text 
verse 3 again says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Now, as we, we move through this, there's a pattern that we see of recounting what it is that God has done. One generation tells the praises to the next. And what a beautiful thing that God has constructed the church to work just like this. Isn't that neat? We have senior saints, seasoned saints in our congregation that have the opportunity to give testimony of what God has done in their lives. And then we've got those, those godly ones in the, in the middle age, right, that are bringing up their families, and they have the opportunity to say, you know what, I've seen God's faithfulness over the course of my entire life. And even seeing some of the, the younger people as they grow, being able to influence those who are coming up under them. This is God's design. The creator of Kronos, the creator of time, intended his story, his faithfulness, to go from one generation to another. I love looking at, at different translations of how God's word comes to life. And, and I wish I knew more and could study more and understand more. But one thing I'll tell you is that in verse 6, there's a word that in English, in the NASB, is awesome. It says, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. Now, if there's a word that, that makes me cringe when I hear it, it's the word awesome. That's awesome. That's great. I saw it on the Padres game the other night on a billboard, and awesome and Padres should never go together. <laughs> but it was there. But another translation translates this rightly, and the word should really be terrible. Terrible. So, so let's try that sentence again with the word terrible. Men shall speak of the power of your terrible acts, and I will tell of your greatness. This is an interesting concept, right? Why would we tell of God's terrible acts? Does God, does God have terrible acts? Does God show his might and great and power that, that inflicts pain? Yes, he does. We, we read that in the book of Job. We saw that this morning as we began to unpack the theology of grief. There are things in which we see God's terrible power. The book of Joel, if you turn with me there. The book of Joel begins with a, a plague of locusts. I'm not an expert on insects, but I do know that there is different kinds of, of locusts that God sent to permit the destruction of the crops of his people. There were different classes of these bugs, and they basically went through over the course of a period of time and ate everything that the people depended upon, leaving them with nothing. And, and look what God says through the prophet Joel, starting in verse 2 of Joel chapter 1. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Isn't that remarkable? There's an instruction to tell of this calamity from one generation to another. Well, guess what? In our time, we've lived through a calamity. Some of you personally have lived through your own calamity. The loss of many loved ones in series. The, the loss of things that are precious to you. The loss of things that you depend upon. 
But guess what God's word says? Tell posterity about that. Tell your kids about that. Tell the next generation. Because God is good even in those terrible acts. God is gracious even in those things. Tell one generation to another. As we we go back to Psalm 145, verse 6 and 7 read together, say, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and shout joyfully with your righteousness. Eagerly utter. I love that, how that's translated in, in NASB. Eagerly utter. In, in, e, in ESV it says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Another way of, of translating that too is eagerly, gush, eagerly utter is gush. Ever heard that word gush? My grandma used to use it. She'd, she'd gush over how somebody looked. Oh, you look so nice today. And would just repeatedly say, oh, you look great today. He looks so nice. And we call that gushing, right? It's like almost uncomfortable. Somebody just keeps going at it so much that you're like, okay, all right, I get it. We're good. But that's what David says of God's goodness. I'm going to keep telling you about God's abundant goodness and, until it makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> until you, you say, I, I get the point, right? Have you ever had an opportunity to share this with an unbelieving coworker or someone that you come across and you want to tell them what Christ has done for you? They're like, yeah, <laughs> right? They, they look at you across that. They don't understand what you're talking about because they've not had the encounter that you have had. Gush about what God has done for you. We'll shout joyfully of your righteousness in verse seven. And verse 8 takes us to some of the virtues of who Christ is that warrant us telling others of what he's done. The, the simple truth that defies words, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. All of his works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory, of your kingdom, and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of your majesty, of your kingdom. You see, God's graciousness and God's mercy are his attributes, and we see those no more clearly than in Christ's forbearance with us. As we move through Ephesians, what a joy to be reminded time and time again of what we once were. Brother Robert reminded us again this morning. We need to remind ourselves of that. He is gracious and merciful. One way to help understand this is is that God does allow this concept of one human generation telling another of what he's done to show his grace and mercy. We saw this morning, for those of you who were in the Sunday school class, this, this pattern that is a result of the curse. And he died. And he died, right? The generations are recounted. That, that particular text was the generations after Noah, after Adam, and they died. But you know what? Those same genealogical accounts also have, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat. And it gives forth new life. And the purpose of that one generation to another is so that God's word, God's mighty acts might be recounted. There are faith systems 
false faith systems that focus entirely too much on generations. They have websites and DNA kits, and I won't mention any more, but the whole concept is to understand genealogies. But let me tell you something. Your ancestry isn't important. What is important is that you are faithful in declaring to the next generation what Christ has done for you. God's plan was to give life for a season from one generation to the next, that they would pass on the baton, telling of God's greatness. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. As you're, as you're turning there, I want to point out that in Matthew chapter 1, there's, a, there's genealogies of Christ. And scripture is so detailed that it tells us how many generations there were from Adam from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, and from the, from the Babylonian captivity to, as Matthew puts it, to Messiah. He tells us that this generational pattern is part of God's plan for redemptive history, and it's recorded for us in beautiful detail. If you would, in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46, I know, it's Reformation Month, and we're going to read about Mary. Mary's prayer to the Lord. Mary's song to the Lord. Look what she says. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty-handed. And he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendant, forever. Isn't that remarkable? Mary says after these certain specified number of generations had gone by, she says, God, that you would take me into account and that you would use my humble, insignificant life that is not to be revered and worshipped. <laughs> Make no mistake. And Mary says, from now on, generations will, will count me blessed but she goes on and she quickly professes the holiness, the greatness of God's name. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And you know, through that, in the fullness of time, Christ came. And he accomplished all that tells us of God's greatness, of his graciousness, of his mercy, of his loving kindness. And that Christ came, a critical moment in human history. And you know what's remarkable about that? From that point on, the generations continue to recount the birth of that Christ child, the sacrifice of that Christ child. So much so that as we, we look at the idea of one generation telling to another, it now takes on a different meaning. We are not just talking about a father giving birth with, with a wife to a child and then another child. We're talking about the family of Christ. We're talking about generations that are now in a spiritual generation. 
for many of you. Part of the, the grief of, of losing our, our beloved pastor is because he's also a spiritual father. That's a, that's a very real part of God's design. Now these generations, as we go from one generation to one generation, aren't just bloodlines because we're blood-bought. We're all part of a family that God has given specific charge to that we tell those who are younger. If you look at 2 Timothy, we see at the beginning of Paul's letter, he says to Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he points to to Timothy's heritage in verse 5, and he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. So you see that? Timothy came to his understanding of, of who God was through his mother and his grandmother. But, but the one who, who led him to a clear understanding of who Christ was, was Paul. And so Paul refers to him as his spiritual son. Time and time again. And you know, the charge of repeating the gospel from one generation to another is, is seen in church terms as well. If you flip a page to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul gives this charge. We made a nod to it this morning, right? You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. That's the mandate for the church. From one spiritual generation to another, keep telling them, keep teaching them, and trust it to faithful men. So as we see this psalm talking about generations, don't just think in the, in the type of generation that is flesh and blood and offspring, but spiritual sons and daughters. That's God's remarkable design. Back in Psalm 146, I'm going to bring a few thoughts to a, to a close here. This is really important because if we look at verse 10, it says, All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. See, this is a remarkable thing in that David, throughout various psalms, tells us that if we fail to sing, guess what? Inanimate objects, a rock or a tree, will sing to him. Here it says, God's works speak for themselves. We see it in creation. We see it in natural disasters. We see it in the things that God orchestrates in his sovereign will. They speak of his greatness. But guess what? There's an instruction for us in all of this that we are the ones that are supposed to explain what all that's all about. Natural revelation makes it clear who God is. But unless you tell others what Christ has done for you, we fall short of doing all that talking of God's greatness requires of us. It says, and your godly ones, or in ESV, and your saints shall bless you. That's an opportunity, an opportunity for the saints to give testimony of what God has done. I find it remarkable that in verse 12, we, we move forward and it says, with verse 11 combined, it says, they shall talk of the glory of your kingdom. That's the saints, the godly ones, and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your kingdom endures throughout all 
generations. Now that statement is an interesting one. If you go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, we have Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in in the fiery furnace. And they're told that they were supposed to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't. And we know that remarkably there was one who appeared like the Son of Man in that furnace with them. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar does then? He pulls them out of the fiery furnace and he makes a proclamation of praise to their God. And exactly, verbatim, what Nebuchadnezzar says is that there is no God like this one. He says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. What an incredible profession. From a guy who who had just had people bowing down to worship him, he rightly recognized who God is. Of course, the next chapter is a bit of a letdown in that he goes and God humbles him. God drives him to a point where, where he has to come to this realization through the painful season of insanity, right? But those words were spoken by a pagan king. So if we we look at this and we understand that God's acts will declare his greatness, that that even those who don't know God declare his greatness, we have a mandate as his saints to bless him. We have an opportunity to tell of what God has done. Think, if you will, of the ten lepers. The ten lepers who, who were cleansed and healed by Jesus. And only one of them went back to thank Christ. Only one of them went back to to recognize with his lips what Christ had done for us. May we be the people of God who consistently speak of what he has done on our behalf. I want to end with with one closing thought on this whole idea of one generation to another. I've had a chance to, to really be thinking out and praying about people that I know, not just in our church, but across the, the country that are those seasoned saints, those who are entering into a season of life where there seems to be less to, to praise God for and a lot more to, to weigh them down, to be discouraging, physical ailments, financial worries, all of those things. But you know what? This plan that God has of us telling of what one generation is to another while we have life in our breath, while we have life in our lungs, we have the opportunity to sing of God's praises. One of my favorite biblical accounts is that of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah grows sick to the point of death. And he asks God to give him just a little bit more time. Just give him one more opportunity and, and to, to understand that each day that he has is purposeful so that he might honor God. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38. We'll just look at this, this briefly. King Hezekiah is sick and he doesn't know how many days he's going to have left and so he cries out to God. And as God heals him, he responds. He's praying, and in verse 16, Hezekiah rightfully recognizes, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore to me my health and make me live. 
Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life. From the pit of destruction you have cast all my sins behind your back. And focus on verse 18 here. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down into the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. You see that? The renewed lease on life, the the perspective on life that Hezekiah has, says, God, you've given me life. And those who have life are the only ones that can sing of God's praise from one generation to the next. The next couple of minutes, we're going to do something new together as a, as a group of believers, and I'm grateful for the brothers who have been a, a part of, of praying through this. We've been praying for praying, okay? One of the things that's really interesting is we have, as a, as a group of, of elders, have decided that we're going to step away from our Wednesday night corporate prayer, and we're going to use the Sunday in the Psalms as an opportunity to pray. So right now, I'd like to ask you to relocate, if you would, and, and get into groups of about eight or ten, and um, I would like to ask that there be an elder or a deacon in each group. So if you're an elder or a deacon, perhaps you could uh, raise your hand and get some groups to sit around you. We're going to have some opportunities to pray together and do some guided prayer. We're going to pray first and foremost. The first thing that we're going to pray is we're going to pray acknowledging in our feeble words of God's greatness. We can't put it into words, but we're going to try. We're going to try to praise God in prayer for his greatness. And then we'll go through a couple of different times of of guided prayer. But I want you to be intentional that this is a a group that's a a mix of generations, okay? Tonight, this text tells us that it's one generation telling to another. So as you find your groups, find an elder or a deacon, find some folks that maybe some younger folks and some older folks and sit together, get yourselves comfortable, a few minutes to get situated, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to practice praising with our lips some of the things that we've seen in this beautiful song. So go ahead, I'll give you a couple minutes.